Well, good morning. I'm Stephen Jones, Assistant Professor of International Studies, but I think you can see that up there. I'm happy to introduce our speaker this morning. Uh, those of you who've had some classes with me, one of the things I like to talk about is how I love to encounter the body of Christ around the world and meeting people who know Jesus, um, but who express it differently. Uh, people who uh, are his children, who are our brothers and sisters, um, and, and there's so many things that we have in common in Christ and so many things that we live out differently. And it's just this beautiful, complex picture of his body. But one of the things that we have in common is his word. And one of the things that is really fun, I think, uh, is to realize that all the time there are people that are actively working on translating the Bible into different languages so that more people can know God more fully. Uh, through his word, and it's really rich and beautiful. Sorry, am I too far away here? Is that what's happening? Sorry. All right. Um, so I, our speaker today is connected to one of those groups, and uh, that's uh, Wycliffe uh, Bible Translators. His name is Ron Kruger. He's a translation consultant. He served in the Philippines for 23 years, and his wife, he and his wife, Joanne, live in Blaine, Minnesota, uh, where he works remotely as a Bible translation consultant for the Philippines Translation Department and as a writer of translator's notes, a resource for Bible translators. Um, Bible translation is incredibly complicated and it's incredibly uh, amazing. Uh, and, and you see the celebrations when people get the word uh, in their own language and it's rich. So uh, please join me in welcoming our speaker. Thank you, Professor Jones, and uh, good to see all of you, although it's a little difficult, actually, to see any of you because of the glare. But anyway, that'll be good. I won't be as nervous. Um, it's wonderful to have the opportunity to share what God has done and what he continues to do in places that we often don't hear about. Uh, doesn't make it on the news. I sure wish it would. but. Uh, I'll give you some of that uh, news that you're, you're, you're missing uh, when you tune in uh, to the 6 o'clock or 10 o'clock news. Um, and this is worth remembering. Now, we'll see if we can get all this to work right. There we go. Okay. Uh, on May... 24, 1844, uh, artist and inventor Samuel Morse uh, sat poised at his desk uh, ready to switch on an experimental device called a telegraph. He was about to send the world's first telegraph message from Washington, D.C. to Baltimore. But what should that first message be? Um, Annie Ellsworth, young daughter of a friend, suggesting sending a quote from Deuteronomy, uh, sorry, Numbers chapter 23. And Morris agreed, and so he uh, tapped out the, you know, in, in dots and dashes of the code that he had invented. Uh, he spelled out the words, what hath God wrought? Uh, 
It's not a question, it's a statement um, of amazement. What hath God wrought? He could not know. With that message, he would be ushering in a new age of communication that eventually would impact the entire globe. How appropriate to give God the credit in that uh, history-changing message. And though obviously human effort and ingenuity uh, were a necessary part of the process, uh, that quote acknowledged that it was accomplished under God's guidance and God's empowerment. That quote is also very apt uh, with reference to an entirely different scenario. Uh, about a century later, in the early 1950s, a number of dedicated men and women, young and old, said farewell to their homelands and embarked on a journey to the Far East. The goal was to bring the word of God to the many cultural communities of the Philippines. They were fully aware of their own weaknesses and their own limitations, but they were also full of faith in what the Almighty God could do, and they looked forward to what he would do. Like Samuel Morse, they couldn't have known the extent to which the message they were about to communicate was going to change history. The word of God translated into the heart languages of the cultural communities of the Philippines was going to transform these communities, a number of them, totally change all that had gone before and make a new history for them. One of those groups, uh, the Cotabato Manobo in the far south of the country, uh, would go so far as to change how time itself was recorded. The coming of God's word in their language became the hinge point of their history. Their years are now numbered as either before or after the translation of the Bible into their language. We have BC, or they've changed it now to BCE, but we have that and then AD. Well, they have before the coming of God's word and after the coming of God's word to our people. But this morning, I'm going to be focusing on two other cultural communities. I will be touching briefly on the Finalig people in the far north, the other, uh, the Toboli in the far south. And as I do that, I will also be sharing about the Bible translation process and specifically what Bible translation consultants contribute to the task. I hope that it will not simply sound dull. I hope that some of you at least will see yourselves as being able, perhaps, to be involved in a similar way as you contemplate your, your future. Okay, the Finalig people. I'm one of the translation consultants, as was mentioned, uh, for the Philippines Translation Department of our mission. 
And uh, here in the U.S., the sending agency, we're known as Wycliffe Bible Translators. But overseas, where we actually are conducting the work, we are known as SIL, Summer Institute of Linguistics. And so um, we, everyone who is a member of SIL is also a member of WBT, Wycliffe Bible Translators. So I might use those terms sort of interchangeably. Um, anyway, here's what happens. Uh, the translation department in the Philippines periodic, periodically will send a draft of a book of the Bible uh, to me that has been translated into one of the languages of the Philippines. And by the way, there are uh, over 7,000 islands in the Philippines and about 171 different languages. One that I checked uh, a while back was the book of Joshua, translated into the uh, language of Finalig. Okay, and eventually we'll get to pictures of the Finalig. The Finalig people are former headhunters, and they have, or, sorry, they live in the very rugged northern mountains of the country. And I don't know if you've ever seen, there we go, um, rice terracing like that. You, you, you might have seen that in National Geographic or what have you, but, um, but that's, uh, that's where they live, in a, a very a beautiful place. In order to do the uh, check of their translation of Joshua, our translation department in the Philippines sent me two main documents. One was the draft of Finalig, I um, uh, should say the uh, draft of Joshua written in Finalig. The uh, second one is what we call a back translation. Uh, it's the translation of that draft back into English uh, so that a consultant can know how they have worded their translation. What I do as a consultant is similar to uh, what you might call content editing. And that is to go over every word and every sentence, every uh, paragraph, comparing to the original Hebrew. Or in the case of the New Testament, of course, comparing to the Greek. Mainly, what I'm looking for is accuracy and clarity and naturalness. The translation has got to say the right things and say them clearly and say them in a way that is as natural as a phenolic uh, man uh, speaking with his hunting buddies or a phenolic mom speaking to the neighbor ladies. So when I am carefully reviewing that draft, uh, if I see that the translation team did an excellent job expressing a difficult theological concept, then I make a note of that and commend them for that. When it seems like they might have the wrong idea or perhaps have worded something in a way that is going to be unclear, uh, I'll make a note about that and then write up a document of suggestions and recommendations uh, that I send off to the translators through email. And then uh, the translators or translation team discusses it and they will get back to me. Uh, they might explain uh, why it's actually fine the way it is and or they will just make a change. Well, we go back and forth like that a few rounds until both 
the translator uh, team and the consultant are, are satisfied that this is as good as we can possibly get it with God's help. At that point, the, um, the checking consultant can then give the official stamp of approval so that that book can be published. So we do a lot, we put a lot of effort into what might be called quality control of the translations, making sure that um, everything is as good as can be. Um, this is my uh, 18th year working as a translation consultant. And what I'd like to focus mostly on this morning is the uh, very first checking assignment I was given. That assignment allowed me to work with some incredible people uh, who are part of an amazing story of transformation. And one of those amazing people is Viv. Uh, Viv is a very perky gal, originally from Wadena, Minnesota. Uh, and back in 1953, uh, which is the year I was born, uh, Viv Forsberg moved into a remote village in the mountains on the uh, large island of Mindanao in the southern Philippines. Her goal was to bring the gospel uh, to the Taboli people and in time to translate God's word into the Taboli language. At that time, the Taboli were marginalized, uneducated, a minority group of hunter-gatherers and slash-and-burn farmers. They were easy prey for unscrupulous uh, outsiders. Uh, disreputable business people took advantage of their naivete in such things as contracts or basic arithmetic. The Tiboli number, just over 100,000, but they were largely ignored and unknown outside the province where they lived. They were also ignorant of the true God. They lived their lives in fear of malevolent spirits, spirits that inhabited animals and trees and sacred objects. Uh, their world revolved around magic, protective charms and shamans and taboos. They believed that sickness was the result of breaking a taboo or angering a spirit. And the only cure was to consult a shaman uh, who through magic arts uh, would determine the nature of the offense. And the offense might be something as innocent as a failure to notice a uh, spider web in the burial urn of a departed ancestor. A uh, shaman would then prescribe the appropriate uh, ritual sacrifice of chickens or pigs or other animals that were needed to be slaughtered in order to appease the angry spirit. Well, as a single gal, uh, Viv was informally adopted by an influential Taboli family, and that family protected her and uh, saw to it that she learned their language well and learned the beliefs of the Taboli people. For significant periods of time, uh, Viv was joined by other single uh, gals, uh, single missionary ladies who joined in that work, but Viv was the mainstay. When she began to uh, tell the people about uh, the true God, initially the response was not enthusiastic. 
even after she began translating the New Testament, the number of believers was just a handful. And uh, the description she gave of these early years is uh, as a trickle, just a trickle of new believers. But then something happened that turned the trickle into a flood. The people were illiterate. And so if they were ever going to be able to read the scriptures that uh, were being translated, they needed to learn to read their own language, and, uh, which mean, meant, of course, they would need to develop an alphabet and help the people to uh, uh, learn to read using that alphabet. The decision was then made to train that small handful of believers to be the literacy teachers. Well, actually, of course, they had to teach them to read and write themselves, but uh, almost immediately afterwards, they were told, guess what? You are now going to be literacy teachers. And, uh, and they also became evangelists because the only materials that were available in the Tiboli language were the scripture portions that were being translated. There was nothing else to read. And so the literacy teachers used those portions as their reading primers, and uh, they went all around the villages and hamlets uh, in the mountains throughout the Tiboli countryside. And God blessed. In the years that followed, the Tiboli people began to turn to Christ in huge numbers. Churches sprang up everywhere. In total, about 200 churches uh, were built in villages where the concept of a church was unheard of just a few years before. Other mission agencies then heard about what was going on there. They sent their own missionaries to help. Denominations were formed, pastors and teachers were trained, God continued to bless. And the last figures that we have available are about 75% of the Tiboli population are now professing believers in Jesus. Schools were also established. Education became a value. 0% literacy jumped to 60%, and the tables were turned. No longer did outsiders take advantage of them. The Tiboli started their own thriving businesses. They sought and received from the government official recognition and uh, land rights. They now have their own municipal hall, their own public sports arena. Uh, Tiboli traditional dance has become uh, very well known throughout Asia. And by 2007, a Tiboli uh, lawyer had earned her credentials to become, or I shouldn't say, it wasn't a lawyer yet, but a Tiboli earned her credentials to become the first ever Tiboli lawyer. <coughs> Excuse me. The national government of the Philippines, in fact, uh, was so impressed and has been uh, that they now showcase the Tiboli to foreign dignitaries. Uh, just to show an example of a tribal group's success, uh, from hunter-gatherers to productive citizens in the modern world. And they love the fact that it happened in their country, so they can take some credit for that. 
Well, throughout the time all these amazing changes were occurring, uh, Viv continued her work and she oversaw the completion of the New Testament. By then, the church had grown so much uh, the, uh, that they had asked then for a revision of the New Testament and also they wanted the Old Testament. And so Viv and her small team of Tiboli co-translators dove into that huge task also. And that's when my part of the story began. I did a review of the Joseph story uh, from the book of Genesis for Viv and her team. And basically, we, we hit it off really well. I ended up being assigned as the Old Testament consultant for the Tiboli. Seven years later, the translation was complete. Everything was checked. The Tiboli Bible was published. And then in 2007, the Tiboli community celebrated the dedication of the Revised New Testament and the, uh, for the first time ever, the Old Testament in their language. I had the uh, privilege to attend that celebration with a number of colleagues and guests from various places in the world. And um, there we go. And I even tried learning this uh, traditional dance. Unfortunately, uh, dancing is not my strong suit, as you can easily see. Okay, I learned to shuffle backward uh, at that time. <laughs> in, in, in spite of that, uh, the celebration was very joyous. The master of ceremonies of the dedication events was the Tiboli lawyer that I had mentioned earlier. And the thing that struck me deepest at that uh, event was her expression of thanks to our mission and to the work of Bible translation. She publicly attributed the progress and the incredible improvement in the lives of the Tiboli people to the translation of the Bible into the Tiboli language. Um, without that, none of that progress would have happened. And it's especially gratifying to hear this from the lips of the people themselves, uh, that they recognize it was God that changed them. And a little aside to the story, um, the Tiboli called Viv Lola, which means grandma, um, even though she remained uh, single for over 70 years. And then uh, somewhere in her mid-70s, she met Mr. Wright, and she became Vivian Van Wynen. Uh, sadly, though, her marriage uh, short-lived. Uh, her husband died just a couple of years ago, about a decade into their marriage. And then Viv just passed away this past summer. Um, but uh, I have zero question that they are both very much enjoying their heavenly reward for uh, lives well spent. This is a copy of the Tiboli Bible that God has used to transform so many lives. I'm going to be putting this on the table in the uh, entry back there, so please uh, take a look at it. It gives you an example of what uh, 
what one of the many scriptures that uh, are produced under Wycliffe Bible Translators and SIL, what, what they are, are like. You won't be able to probably make a lot of sense out of it, but the pictures are really good. All right, and also while you're there, this is a book that discusses, discusses too dry a word. It presents another people movement. It, it is wonderful, a uh, wonderful story of uh, a gal named Joanne Shetler. She was the translator in how God used her experience in uh, her village to transform a community. And this book is being given away for free. And I'm not sure how that is going to be decided, who gets it. So you better run there quick if you'd like to get this free book. All right. But I'm not done with the talk yet. All right. Second task of a group of us who are translating, or I shouldn't say translating, but uh, consulting, uh, is to write translation resources uh, for our International Translation Department, and that is out of Dallas, Texas. Who do we write the resources for? Uh, I'd like to answer that by way of an example, and it's back to the uh, earlier uh, group that I'd mentioned. I checked the book of Joshua, translated into the language of the Finalig people in the north. Well, you might never guess who is doing that translation. It's not Wycliffe. It's not any mission group. Uh, remember also I mentioned that the Finalig were headhunters. Well, not only have they given up headhunting, a small team of Phenolic believers are now the ones translating the Old Testament into their own language. They have uh, the New Testament already, and uh, the New Testament was translated according the, to the uh, traditional uh, approach that we have used in Wycliffe. In that approach, it's the missionaries who are the shakers and the movers, and uh, gathering a team of uh, nationals, and we work together on the translation, but, um, but basically it's the missionary who's in charge. The Phenolic New Testament was translated uh, in that way and was dedicated in 2004. But now the church is very well established, and a number of the Phenolic people have college degrees. Small group of them have uh, risen to this challenge of translating the Old Testament um, and they are now the shakers and the movers. Uh, they have entire control over that project and uh, ownership of it. And we have offered consultant help, so we do uh, check the work uh, because they want us to do that. And that's why uh, you know, I and a number of other consultants have, have been doing that. Uh, but there is no missionary uh, as part of that team. Well, the Phenolic uh, represent, in a way, the new way of doing things that has been emerging in the last number of years. And that is uh, an increase in the number of second and third world translators uh, like the Phenolic, men and women who uh, are from various countries, various minority groups, uh, minority languages, motivated believers, they're committed 
to translating the scriptures into their own native languages. In some cases, they don't have any scripture at all. Uh, in some cases, a lot of cases, they have the New Testament, but not the Old. Uh, and so this is taking place all over, uh, not just in the Philippines uh, or other parts of Asia, but also in Africa and Central and South America and various other places throughout the world. But they face a, a huge challenge, uh, and that is a lack of Bible resources uh, that they can understand or that they can afford. And they also may lack uh, training in uh, Bible school or in seminary. And so uh, SIL, uh, that part of our organization, uh, is producing uh, special commentaries that uh, focus on how to translate every book of the Bible. And we call that series Translator's Notes. We make them available in easy English and Spanish and French. And uh, that way, any native speaker who is at least able to, uh, you know, or at least has a fluency level of basically a high schooler uh, in one of these languages of wider communication, um, they would be able to take advantage of these resources and, uh, and end up with a, you know, a far, far better translation of God's word than they would otherwise have. Uh, we try in these notes to discuss every issue that a translator needs to know in order to translate every book of the Bible accurately and clearly. And uh, my particular assignment is to write notes for the Old Testament book of Hosea. Um, at this point, translators' notes for the first half, uh, one through seven, uh, is published in preliminary form digitally. Uh, but I have printed out a few samples, the first 20 pages of that publication, in case any of you are curious and would like to take a look uh, at what's in those commentaries. And uh, they'll, they'll be sitting at the table also in the back uh, or in the entry, if you'd like to have a look. Well, the ministry of Bible translation uh, is, is, is a huge, huge task. Uh, it takes a lot of people with a lot of different skills, uh, serving in many different roles. But it's a ministry that bears a lot of fruit. And that's because it's his message that we are communicating. It's not about us, it's about him. If you could hang on for another two minutes, I'd like to share a story that Viv has shared. And it's just a great summary statement. Early in her career as a translator among the Tiboli, she became friends with an elderly woman in the village. And that woman began explaining some tribal beliefs regarding death. She told Viv that the Tibolis believe there are two worlds that we live in. One is this world. The other is the world you live in after you die. Between those two worlds is a deep chasm, and no one knows if it has a bottom. In order to get from our world to the other world, you have to cross that chasm on two bamboo poles that form a bridge, but that bridge doesn't have any handrails. 
And as, well, I should say, when you are about to cross that chasm, the spirit owner of that chasm meets you at the bridge. And he tries to frighten you so you'll fall into that bottomless pit. So Viv asked, does anyone ever make it across? And the old woman shrugged and said she didn't know. She showed Viv a series of scars that were apparently purposely inflicted in uh, her forearms from uh, burning. She says, we, didn't, we don't know if anyone crosses safely or not, but when we must cross that chasm, these scars are to become our light. They are to frighten away the spirit owner, so perhaps we'll be able to cross safely. Well, years later, when uh, the translation was, was well along, many Tobolis were now believers, and Viv was talking to a young boy in the village. She noticed he didn't have those traditional scars on his arms. And so very playfully, she asked, well, where are your scars? I don't see any scars. Before he could answer, the boy's mom spoke up. Well, he doesn't need those scars. He has trusted Jesus. When he reaches the bamboo bridge, Jesus himself is going to meet him. The scars of Jesus will be his light. What hath God wrought? Transformation of villages and entire communities. People who were once lost in darkness are now saved, living in the kingdom of light. And these magnificent transformations that God has wrought is, is, is just fabulous to be a part of. Uh, I hope that you will consider uh, joining us in this great endeavor. Thank you. Thank, thank you for sharing with us today. And uh, let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you for the transformation that you uh, love to do in the lives of people. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us through your word. Um, yeah, we just ask, uh, ask for you uh, to build a love uh, for you and your word in us. Yeah, thank you in Jesus' name. Have a good day.